0: Welcome to the Blue Side Podcast, brought to you by Cambridge University Science Magazine. Every two weeks, we delve into the intersections between science, technology and society, featuring guest researchers who present a fresh perspective on their work, what goes on behind the scenes and the latest developments in their fields.
1: The Blue Side Podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, who supply laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of their full product range, visit www.gbo.com.
0: everybody, it's brilliant to be back with the podcast and this week myself Ruby and Laura Chilver who's one of our newcomers to the podcast um, have interviewed Bianca De Sanctis. So Bianca is a PhD student and her research focuses on genome reconstruction using ancient DNA samples. So in this episode we actually talk about one of her projects which um, included reconstructing the genome of a stone age bear. We also talk about the difficulties of working with ancient DNA samples and also how all of it can be pieced together to understand population genetics of now extinct species. So it was a really interesting chat that we had with Bianca and we really hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Bianca. Thank you
2: so much for joining us on the Blue Side podcast today. Um, Would you like to start us off by telling us a little bit about your research?
3: Yeah, hi, Uh, thanks for having me. Um, So I'm a PhD student in the department of zoology um, and I work on ancient environmental DNA. Um, So ancient environmental DNA, it's a really collaborative field. So it takes archeology span and geology and paleontology and genetics and kind of shows them all together. Um, And I work at the final stage. So I'm a computational researcher. Um, So I analyze the DNA once it's already been sequenced and I look for patterns, population wide patterns in the DNA. Um, and I try and extract structure from it. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty new field. Uh, it's really fast paced. Uh, we sequenced, we, the field, <laughs> um, sequenced uh, mammoth DNA from a million years ago from a mammoth fossil uh, just a few months ago. And so the the date for the oldest DNA is getting pushed back like repeatedly uh, and quickly. So it's it's really quickly moving now that it's sort of, yeah existing as a field. (laughs) Um, So I'll tell you about ancient environmental DNA. Um, So the problem is with fossils, where we usually get ancient DNA from, is that when we sequence them, it's really destructive. Uh, It causes irreversible damage to really high-value specimens a lot of the time. Like You want to keep them in museums, and you have to drill into them in order to get the DNA, right? Um, And also, fossils are really hard to find. So just because a species existed at some point in the past doesn't mean we're ever going to find a fossil from it at that time, right? So. It's kind of not ideal. Um, So this is where ancient environmental DNA comes in because nowadays we can extract DNA from a bunch of different environmental sources like soil or permafrost or lake cores or like cave (laughs) sediments, all sorts of different sources. Uh, And we can get a snapshot of the local ecosystem from all types of different organisms uh, whose DNA we find. So then if you take your DNA sample from underground or somewhere that a geologist has confirmed is from the past, then you can get a snapshot of the ancient local ecosystem. Um, so this is good because we're not going to destroy any valuable fossils. And also it's good because we can reconstruct the entire ecosystem rather than just a single organism's DNA. Um, also, compared to fossils, there's an abundance of soil and permafrost to sequence. So there's lots of possibility in this new field, and it's really new. It's only in the last five, 10 years that people have really started doing this. Um, and yeah, there's there's less limitations here than there are using fossils for ancient DNA so it's, it's really exciting um, and yeah recently I even worked on a project with 50,000 year old ancient environmental DNA from permafrost so we're pushing that date back all the time too.
1: And just probabilistically there must be a much higher abundance and likelihood of finding DNA when it's not in the one specimen that's died but in hairs or things that they've left around their whole life.
3: Yeah, well, you're sort of, I mean, if you get a bone from a specific species, right, maybe you get like a caribou bone, you're definitely going to find a lot of caribou DNA, more caribou DNA than you'd find sequencing the nearby soil. But yeah, it's sort of nice that you get an idea of everything that existed at that time, or at least everything that left DNA.
1: And uh, you published, I think just a few weeks ago, a paper about reconstructing ancient bear genomes. Could you... (laughs) tell us more about this?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe first I'll tell you about why it's exciting. Um, I'm excited less about the fact that it's bears and more about the fact that it's population genetics. Um, So um, up until really recently, up until that paper, actually, uh, most of these ancient environmental DNA studies have been about measuring species abundance. So trying to quantify um, if and how much of a species existed in an ancient environment, Um, So this is useful in a lot of applications like conservation research. Uh, But I'm a population geneticist, so (laughs) I study how the genetic composition of species have changed over time. Um, So studying this using ancient environmental DNA hasn't been possible because the quality of the data just hasn't been good enough for the kinds of comparisons that we need to find the evolutionary patterns. Because ancient environmental DNA is notoriously damaged. I can tell you about that in a bit if you want. Um, So yeah, in this project, we were able to actually do this for the first time. We actually got enough. DNA out of the soil about these bears. It just happened to be the bears that we found, I guess, um, that we could actually do population genetics on ancient environmental DNA for the first time. So we can actually make conclusions about the evolutionary history of some of the organisms that we find rather than just noticing that they existed. Um, and that's that's the big breakthrough about the
2: paper.
1: Wow. That's real progress, especially for something that's only been going on for about five years
3: it's moving really fast the field yeah it's very exciting
2: yeah and 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 so it seems like you know getting getting these samples from such sort of a vast variety of uh, environments as well it seems really exciting like you said you keep pushing back um you know the, the limits of all of this and so you said you're mostly focused on the sort of computational end of these things so um is your day-to-day mostly sort of receiving sequencing data and sort of sifting through it and seeing what you can do with it and exactly so, that. yeah oh brilliant and so if so what what kind of what sort of analyses do you run how do you even start to assemble a genome of something that died you know <laughs> it's been extinct for like fifty thousand years or something well, so
3: like I said, the ancient environmental DNA is really, really damaged, um, and it's also really fragmented. So it's not like we get; it's not like we ever get an entire genome out of it. Um, so in the case of the black bears, uh, I think we got 0.03x. That's about three percent of a genome that's covered by even a single read, which any modern geneticist, in terms of modern DNA, I mean, would not, you know, wouldn't be satisfied with in terms of quality. Um, so it's it's not very much data. Um, to work with. So you kind of you kind of have to do this thing where you take some modern reference panel and you catalog the variation in the modern species um and then you overlap the ancient DNA reads um with the modern panel and sort of only work on those sites that you actually have data for. So you have a lot of missing data. So all your algorithms have to uh deal with that.
2: Well, oh, brilliant. So it's, it seems like you have to be quite um aware of your limitations of the data when, when you are like um... of linking everything together as well like is it quite difficult so if you have an environmental sample you know um i suppose not contamination but like is it hard to sort of sift apart what might be something that you're looking for and like perhaps sequences that are actually belonging to something else
3: yeah, that's exactly it. You've hit one of the biggest problems that we have, um, especially, well, in ancient environmental DNA, especially, right? Even with fossils, you'll have some contamination with like modern bacteria or something. But ancient environmental DNA, like you want to pick out the bare DNA. Well, I mean, I'm sure you've heard all these popular statistics saying that humans share 99% of our DNA with whatever species you want to, you want to pick, like over half of our DNA with a banana, whatever. Um, and the reads that we get of DNA, they're in really, really short segments. So often when we try to when we try to map them against some database to see what species they belong to, they map to all sorts of different ones. And we just can't tell. Um, So we end up having to do these really stringent filtering algorithms before we can even start to work on the bear DNA or any species DNA.
1: What made you decide that you wanted to actually work with ancient genome reconstruction and exploration?
3: Um, it wasn't I mean, it wasn't the most purposeful decision, let's be honest. Um, so I'm a population geneticist. Uh, before I came to Cambridge, I worked in a population genetics lab doing mostly mathematical theory um, because my undergrad was in math. So I was working mostly on, you know, evolutionary mathematical theory for population genetics. Um, and I sort of showed up in my supervisor's lab and said, "Hi, I want to do population genetics and I know you're good at it. Can we work together?" And he said, "Well, I'm starting this project um with a with a collaborator on ancient environmental DNA. And I was like, sure, that sounds good. <laughs> so here we are. And it's great. I love it.
2: Brilliant. So it was kind of more like the stars aligning, but it, it kind of aligned to some of your interests and just so happened to be something that's quite cool as well. And like, yeah, um yeah, it's really it's really interesting. So with regard to um the applications of this type of research, you know, is it you know can we actually use this ancestral information to you know inform us about you know today's animals and environmental problems like is there a link there that you can kind of you know learn from shall we say yeah
3: well so it's it's more so about understanding the evolutionary history of the organisms that we're studying so i can i can tell you if you want about the things that we discovered about the black bears Um, You're nodding, sure, I can do that. (laughs) Okay, so let's go into the black bears. Maybe I'll give you a bit of background on the project, um, if that's all right. So yeah, okay, so often in ancient DNA studies, you're not really sure what species you're gonna find. Um, You just start sequencing something that looks like it might be well preserved. So uh, inside a cave is a really good option for that, right? You're not just gonna pick some soil off the ground and try to sequence it. Um, It's not gonna work so well, but yeah. (laughs) So let's let's talk about this cave. Um, so, this is a cave called Chiquahita Cave. Uh, it's in northern Mexico, and the reason that my collaborators sequenced DNA from that particular cave was because they recently found potential ancient human artifacts in the cave. Uh, so they found potential stone tools dating back to thirty thousand years ago. Um, so this was published in this past summer. Uh, <laughs> if you want to look at it, it's it's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, that we found potential stone tools dating back to 30,000 years ago, which is pretty crazy in terms of the archaeological um, impact that that has, because, you know, in terms of human arrival in North America, we usually sort of think that's around 15,000 years ago, maybe 20. So that's pushing back the date for the earliest time of human arrival in North America, if those are indeed ancient human tools that they found. So it's, I think it's not entirely clear, but it's, it's, Caused a huge uproar and debate in the ancient human archaeological community. So they thought they would also sequence a bunch of the soil in the cave and look for ancient human DNA to validate their findings. Um, and they didn't find any human DNA. You know, take that as you will. But they did find a ton of ancient bear DNA. So that's how this project started. Somebody said, "Do you want to work on some ancient bear DNA?" And I said, "Yes." Um, so yeah, we, there's there's DNA from two types of ancient bears. There's American black bears, which I'm sure you know. And this other bear, called the giant short-faced bear, which went extinct maybe 10 or 11,000 years ago. And it was giant. It was three times the size of normal bears. Um, so some picture some large scary bear. <laughs> you can look at it. Like, it's called Arctodus. Um, and yeah, so we sort of had to pick those two things apart and then do separate analyses on both of them because there was lots of DNA from both of them. I guess this cave was a common bear. Hang out. So, let's tell you about the black bears first. Um, so, because black bears are still around, we have a lot more genetic information for them than the other species I mentioned. So, to start, I grabbed 83 modern black bear genomes from across America from a study that was conveniently published only a few years ago. <laughs> so that, was, that was very convenient that there were 83 available genomes to compare it to from all across North America. Oh. So Yeah, then I took all of those um, and I sort of constructed this reference panel of modern black bear variation. And I used a bunch of different computational techniques to compare our ancient black bear DNA to the modern black bear populations. Um, And it turns out that the ancient Mexican black bears are closer in terms of genetic ancestry to the modern East black bears in America. Um, So you can sort of picture mixing on the Southeast of the United States with the Northern American black bears. And so we can say that they were ancestrally related um, so, this, this helps us draw inferences about the evolutionary history of black bears in North America. So, I'll tell you about that, um, but before I do, there's something important I should mention, and that's something called the Last Glacial Maximum. Okay. So, this was around 20,000 years ago. Um, there was a giant ice sheet covering basically all of Canada. Wow. So, it was, it was basically entirely covered in ice, and the bears could not live there, right? <laughs> Right. <laughs> so the black bear population, which, you know, hypothetically lived throughout North America before this, would have been suppressed to these small regions in the south that weren't covered in ice.
2: So
3: mm. we call these regions refugia, um, sort of places that the black bears could live during this really cold last glacial maximum time. So our model, based on these ancient black bear genomes and modern black bear genomes, hypothesizes that we had... Two refugia on either side of the southern part of the United States and northern Mexico. Um, and there was some interbreeding between the two populations, but they weren't, they weren't one population. You know, they were, they were fairly genetically distinct populations. And then when the ice sheet melted, maybe 12, 15,000 years ago, and the forests came back, and the black bears could have could have repopulated those regions that, that were covered in ice beforehand, right? Um, then they would have moved back up into the northern United States and Canada. And this probably happened with wave on either side of the united states like imagine the bears moving from south to north on either side um, because there's grasslands in the middle and that's not really an easy habitat for bears to live in so then they would have spread across canada and into alaska and that's sort of what we learned so yeah we learned a lot about black bear evolutionary history from these ancient genomes
2: wow that's amazing and i suppose in a way like it confirms a lot of other things in terms of the way things were back then as well and like how how a an, like a population can adapt to its surroundings in that way and, and how you know as as the climate changed they changed too so it sounds like t- t- a sort of fascinating story and like super important like even today sort of understanding how different populations work especially in response to environmental change so yeah that sounds incredible and and so you're the, the the technique of using this in you know, EDMA as we call it um, has really had a massive impact on the field and has able, you know, enabled researchers to to be able to reach back further and, and get an idea of what was around and things like that. Can you I guess it's difficult to say, but can you predict, you know, what what where, what does the future hold for this field? Do you think there's any further developments that could happen in terms of using different types of DNA or different extraction techniques or or anything like that that might push the field even further?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, definitely, I think we're going to get older and older DNA. Um, I am not an experimental researcher, so I don't think I can accurately predict how old we're going to be able to push it to. But certainly, I think if the fossils got to a million years old, then we can get to at least a million years old with ancient environmental DNA. I think probably there's, there's space to go older than that. Um, but I guess we'll just have to see how things develop. Um, I think on the computational side, and uh, the analysis side, we're going to see a lot more population genetics coming out soon. So we're going to see a lot more of these types of studies where we can learn actually about the evolutionary history of the organism and then the entire ecosystem, right, from the ancient DNA.
1: Um, I read in the, the paper that the the Mexican black bears that you've kind of and the first people to actually attribute an ancestry to are the only uh kind of threatened population of bears now So do you think that the discovery of their ancestry and the last thousands of years of their existence will be something that can be used a lot in their conservation efforts today
3: i hope so i don't know the details of the conservation research i know that there's um, in terms of conservation of black bears in North America, I know that there's different species delimitations where you know they call different subspecies uh, different names, and therefore they get different conservation statuses um, and different protection levels. So I, I would hope that the you know the understanding of an ancestry would inform those labels and therefore the conservation statuses and protections that these animals get. But I, I don't know the details.
1: Okay, but in any case, you're definitely contributing <laughs>
3: quite. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs>
2: yeah that's incredible and just just for our listeners in terms of thinking about DNA and the fact that it can survive for so long um, you know could you just sort of provide us with like a little insight into how stable it is because although perhaps it's not in the best state that it could be the fact that it survives so long um, you know what is it about it that that enables us to you know to, to gather and extract it and sequence it
3: uh, funny question. This is very poorly understood. Um,
2: right.
3: As far as I understand it, um, we understand that certain environments will enable preservation a little easier, right? Like permafrost um, is better for preserving DNA. Uh, insides of caves, you can sort of imagine places that aren't easily disturbed um, or that are cold. <laughs> I think bogs are quite good as well. But I, I don't think we have some, you know, comprehensive answer to that question um the the damages the the damage processes that affect ancient DNA uh the main one is called deamination and I don't think we really fully understand how that happens either I mean it doesn't seem like necessarily that there's more if it's older it doesn't necessarily seem like it uh, depends specifically on any single factor. I think it's I think it's related to a lot of the preservation conditions and a lot of random chance. Almost, um, I can tell you about the most common damage pattern. Uh, I think it's actually pretty interesting. Um, yeah. Deamination. Jeez. So deamination uh, is when a so DNA is made of A's and C's and T's and G's. Uh, so deamination is when in your ancient DNA a C base turns into a T base via the removal of an amino group hence deamination. Um, it's a little more technical than that, but let's let's go with that for now. Um, and you know, obviously if you're looking at your ancient DNA and you've got a bunch of Ts where there should have been Cs and there was a C in the original animal, this is going to be really problematic for our analyses, right? So when we look for evolutionary changes in DNA, the most simple thing that we look for, and the thing that I always look for in ancient environmental DNA, because everything else is a little too complicated for such low quality data, is these single changes in these bases. So these single changes are called single nucleotide polymorphisms, uh, or SNPs. We call them SNPs for short. And it turns out that about 2 thirds of these uh, SNPs are in a class called transitions. So transitions are C to T, T to C, A to G, or G to A. And The problem with deamination is that it clouds up the analyses that rely on counting or comparing these SNPs with other species. So you can just use the SNPs that aren't transitions, but now you've just thrown away 2 thirds of your data and you know if you did proper filtering you've already thrown away most of it anyway so it's, it's not ideal right you didn't have that much data in the first place so deamination causes giant problems for us but at the same time it's also really useful uh, because it only appears in ancient dna so we can use it to authenticate that our dna is actually ancient so this is important too because ancient dna is almost always contaminated with modern dna so we're getting better at sampling Uh, and laboratory techniques to avoid this. Like my colleagues on the bear project went into the cave wearing hazmat suits. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, but it's still, like contamination is still enough of an issue that you generally always have to prove that the DNA you're claiming is ancient, is actually ancient. So there's little pieces of software that we run to check that it is indeed deaminated. Um,
1: So the deamination is on one hand very helpful and on one hand really not at all helpful.
3: Yeah, it helps us confirm that it's ancient DNA, but it messes up all our analyses on the ancient DNA.
2: <laughs> yeah. Wow. No, that, that that's amazing. Yeah, that's that's so cool that like you can almost date your DNA in that way. Although it is annoying when you are trying to identify differences and things like that. And it seems like a, a strong theme is almost like location is key. So knowing where to sample is super super important with regards to this in terms of. Choosing a location that like you said might have somehow preserved the DNA a little bit longer than another sort of location and um, is, is that something that your research informs as well like in like flip it on its head for example have you ever received samples from a site that probably wasn't the best and have had to basically say no there's nothing we can do because it just wasn't preserved enough
3: uh well no I haven't been involved in that because I think what would happen is they'd take a look at it before they try to send sure. it. To me. it <laughs> that it didn't work so well, but I was part of a study recently where um we had DNA from all around the Arctic in a bunch of different sites, and some of them obviously had more DNA for certain animals or for any quality uh, than other ones, right? So I guess it's sort of luck to some extent, um some extent I mean it's it's choosing good environments but even recently a study came out with thousand maybe three thousand year old DNA from some tropical forest so it's not exactly impossible um, and I think we're learning more all the time about what causes damage and what causes fragmentation and what enables us to actually find DNA in the soil or not but it's still it's still pretty unclear
2: um, and so you have chatted about how you're very keen on population genetics and things like that so um, and what, what does the future hold for you as a scientist? You know, what are you, would you like to work on next? Do you have like a path that you'd like to follow or are you still quite flexible and you're doing you know, more DNA stuff or do you, what, what are your plans? Yeah, uh, let's
3: see. So I, I finished my PhD in about a year and a half. Um, right now I'm working on some ancient trees, which is quite nice. Um, I am a big fan of trees. Um, I, I'm not too picky in terms of the organism that I work on. I think maybe that's what you're trying to ask. Um, I don't mind if it's bears or trees so much, um, in terms of the actual work that I do, the analyses that I do, it doesn't really make a difference what organism it is. Um, other than when you're trying to interpret your results in terms of some evolutionary history, right? So it's not such a big deal to me. Um, I guess we'll see. We'll, we'll see what ends up happening. Yeah. Brilliant. It sounds like. Sorry. (laughs) No, I just was going to say, I certainly intend to stay in population genetics.
2: Yeah, brilliant. It seems like it gives you, even working in the DNA, it seems to give you a flexibility that perhaps you might not be able to have if you were working with still living creatures, right? Because we've become so niche. You know, you might be a bacterial population (laughs) geneticist or whatever, but actually, yeah, being able to switch between trees and birds and even perhaps human remains, like, yeah, that, that's really cool that it gives you that flexibility as well.
3: Yeah, I, this didn't happen so much in the bear project because we mostly only really found lots of bear DNA. But yeah. I also in other projects I'm working on, I find it really nice to work on entire ecosystems at once and sort of get a picture of what the place looked like that long ago. Um, and sometimes it looks completely different now. So it's, I really, I really like that too, that you get some sort of overall picture of everything rather than just one organism.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That must be really exciting and just kind of perspective changing seeing how an entire location was instead of just how one species or genus was
2: yeah definitely well wow it's been so interesting to hear about all of your work and we'll definitely um link the paper in, in in the um in the episode description if people want to find out a little bit more about it um so yeah I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today um and and yeah it's been wonderful to listen to
0: your research thanks for having me it was nice thank you for listening to this week's episode we hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed recording it please let us know what you think on twitter at bluesidepod or email us at podcast at blueside.co.uk we'd love to hear your feedback see you next time the Blue Sky Podcast is sponsored by Nature Careers. If you get a chance, take a look at Nature Careers' new funding website, which collates thousands of international funding and grant opportunities. So whether you're looking for an undergrad or postgrad scholarship, fellowships or funding for a project, try a search at naturecareersfunding.com.